You're listening to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. I'm very excited about my guest today. He's, uh, he's you could say he's a legend. He, he's part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He has a great new album out called America Rock and Roll. He co-wrote a song that in Philadelphia, the Philadelphia radio stations always do the Rock and Roll 500, like the Indy 500. He co-wrote the song, which came in fifth. And he's got a really cool nickname I saw on his website. My guest is Don Felder. How you doing, Don? Hey, I'm doing great, Steve. What's going on in Philly? Uh, you know what? It's actually sunny today. Every Friday it's been raining. Now, now you live in L.A., right? I do. I, actually, I get to visit my home in L.A. maybe three to five days a month. Most of the time I live on the road. Okay. Well, now, what, how do you, as you get older, how does the road, how do you feel about the road? I mean, I'm sure you have a great connection to your fans, but does it get tiresome to you at times? Well, you know, really, this job is a 25-year-old job. You want to be 25, 30 years old to do it at the rate and pace that you need to do it. I don't have to ever play again. I just love to play music, and as long as I can physically uh, play well and get up and go and travel, I love it. The response and the love and the joy I get from playing music live for people is really without the money or the fame or the accolades or any of that stuff. It's just about the love of playing music and seeing people get really happy and really excited by what I'm doing. Now, how did you get into music? Were you a, a, were you a big fan as a kid, or what made you take this path, which has been very successful and you're very respected, but how did it all start? Well, I think we were the last family in Alachua County, Florida, to get a television. We had this black and white TV. I remember my dad tuning in the Ed Sullivan show. This is like mid-50s or something. And I saw Elvis Presley, and I saw him gyrating around with his snarled lip and his greasy hair flipping around, and all these young girls screaming at him and so excited about what he was doing. And I went, you know, I think I'd like to do that. That looks like fun. So I uh, managed to trade a handful of cherry bombs to this kid across the street for a a broken acoustic guitar, broken, I mean, the strings were broken on it, and uh, learned how to play the thing myself. <laughs> you're going to have to excuse my cough. Oh, it's all right. You're on the road. I, un- <laughs> I understand. You'll be, able, you'll be able to edit this, I hope, yeah? Yeah, yeah. So you, you had started playing, and when did you know you were good? I'm still trying to figure that out, to tell you the truth, because everybody has their own unique way of handling a guitar. If I pick up a guitar and play it, it's going to sound like me. If if Jimmy Page picks up the same guitar, it's going to sound like Jimmy Page. If Eric Clapton picks up that guitar, it's it's not the arrow, it's the Indian. And everybody has their own unique style. Some people are shredders, like, uh, Eddie Van Halen is a magnificent player. Joe Satriani, more technique than I'll ever have in all four hands, if I had four hands. But um, I play more melodically and simply uh, so people can remember the solos. You know, I've learned from jazz guys like Miles Davis, horn players that have to play a line and stop, take a breath, and start playing the next line. Uh, and 
so I, I never really consider myself good. I'm just unique in that I play the way I play. And fortunately, a lot of people have been able to understand what I say when I play guitar, enjoy it, sing my solos back to me, uh, that sort of stuff. So I don't ever consider myself good when you compare yourself to other people. There's so many people that have far more superior technique and styles than mine. Well, you have to be pretty good because your nickname and on your website it says Fingers. Who gave you that nickname? How long ago? And do you like it? Actually, Glenn Fry gave me that nickname. Uh, when I play, I have pretty long hands, pretty long fingers. I should have been a piano player, I guess, because the spread of my fingers is, is really substantial. But when I play, he would watch my hands and he said it looks like a large spider climbing around on the fingerboard. And so he nicknamed me Fingers. And it was just since we had two Dons in the band, he would say Don, and he would, everybody would know he was talking to Don Henley. And if he said Fingers, he was talking <laughs> to me. So it gave me a nickname that kind of separated the two Dons, uh, as well as was very complimentary at the same time. So, you know, you had your tenure with the Eagles, and now you have this solo album coming out. And it's been seven years uh, from your last solo album. What took you so long, and were you, did you, were you writing material for it that you knew it was going to come out, you know, five years ago? Or what was the whole process of this new album, which I still call them albums, is a great album, and it does rock, and American Rock and Roll is a great title for it. Well, I've been working so much on the road. If I'm home in L.A., somewhere between three and seven days a month, which is where my studio is, that's a lot. <clears throat> and so it takes time being in a studio to write songs, produce songs, record songs, edit songs, master songs, mix songs, artwork. It just takes time to do that. Now, if I stopped touring, I could probably finish a record in nine months, ten months, <clears throat> but it's I locked myself up in a studio for that long. I would really be missing one of the most fun, exciting parts of being a musician, which is playing live for people. I, I know a lot of actors that are both do Broadway and they do film or television. And it's different when you walk out on a soundstage shooting a movie and you're doing take 17 or take 18. No, wait, they got to adjust this light. Sorry, let's shoot that again, take 19. Versus walking out on Broadway where you don't get a second take. You have to go out there on point, perform for these people live, and the excitement, the adrenaline that happens when you're put on the line like that is really intense, is really wonderful. And you can't get that in the studio. So both areas of that life, the writing and recording and producing, are beautiful. I love to walk into a dead, dark studio power it up, nothing in the air, and walk out at the end of the day and go, that's rocking, that's great, I love that, man, that's just fun. I love walking out on stage and playing for people and getting everybody up out of their seats, dancing and rocking and filming with their iPhones at the end of the night. So they're two very different, yet very fulfilling uh, environments to be in, but I prefer to play live. But when I'm home, 
I'm not laying out by my pool in the California sunshine. You should be. <laughs> I'm in the studio. I'm in the dungeon in my dark studio, writing and recording, trying to chip away at this next project. And I'm hoping I'll be able to get something done and out again in the next two years. Now, a lot of these recordings were done almost two years ago. Sambori and Orianti were put on this record two years ago. And by the time they were on and we had it uh, final edited, mixed, uh, mastered, artwork done, deals done with record labels, uh, distribution in place, and blah, 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 blah. All the business loopholes that have to be done. But that's another year and a half, just that final wrap-up. Once the music's recorded, it's usually a year to a year and a half of just business schluck that has to be done. And so... You know, I, I hope to get something out within the next couple of years. So I'm writing a recording now, so it won't be so long next time. Well, this album, I mean, it, it has like a who's who of guests. I mean, you look at it and you're like, wow, if everyone on that album was on a one bill, it'd be like an insane concert. How did you approach them or did they approach you because you are known and people respect your work? I think some of it was both. First of all, almost all the people that were included on this record, I know. Uh, they're friends. I've played golf with them. We've done charity events together. Uh, I've known Sammy Hagar since the 80s, and we do charity events together. I was on his TV show. Just, you know, Fleet, Mick Fleetwood and I have toured in the 70s when it was the Eagles, Fleetwood Mac touring together. Uh, play golf together when he comes through L.A. We're just friends. And so when a friend calls you up and goes, hey, I, I got a favor, as long as it's not asking him to move. Right. <laughs> you know, you come over and help me move. <laughs> or the airport. Take you, to, take you to LAX at 5 o'clock on a Friday. <laughs> as long as it's not one of those, everybody responded very excitedly. And then when they started finding out the names of the other people, on the record, everybody wanted to, as a matter of fact, I ran out of songs to put guests on. Uh, there were some people that I'm going to add to my next uh, my next project that I wish I could have had room and songs for them to work on uh, with me on this record. So, who knows? It's, uh, it's just finding people that you know, you know the way they play, you know what song would be appropriate for them to play on. Like, for example, the title trap, American Rock and Roll. I was at Woodstock in 1969. I saw Jimi Hendrix. I saw Janis Joplin. I saw Grateful Dead. I saw Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I saw Santana. It's unbelievable. You want to talk about the greatest live show? That's probably it in the history of rock and roll. That one weekend of three days was the largest rock nuclear explosion in the history of rock and roll music. And the the outfall of that really impacted the whole world. Uh, it was a global event. And all of these musicians that I mentioned in that song, American Rock and Roll, were either directly or indirectly uh, influenced heavily by those artists that were there. And so I wanted to write this song that was like a musical rockumentary going through the decades it showed a bit of the evolution of rock and roll, starting back in 1969 uh, at Woodstock. As a matter of fact, there's a line in 
hotel in California that says, we haven't had that spirit here since 1969. It's about the spirit of Woodstock, that just unbelievable happening of that magical event that happened in music back there. And so the impact of that event has run its course for decades now, knowingly and unknowingly. Different generations of artists have risen and influenced the next generation of artists. So I wanted to write verse by verse, kind of through the decades, pointing out the people, some of the people that I knew who had been influenced by that event. Uh, and so I wanted it to sound like the late 60s, early 70s when it starts off. So when I think of a drummer, Mick Fleetwood sounds like the late 60s, early 70s. He plays, his tone, his pocket is beautiful, but it's really, that's what it sounds like. He, that sound he is so known for. So I asked Mick if he would play on the record, and he agreed. And about halfway through, I brought in Chad Smith from the Chili Peppers, who plays unbelievably hard. He's got a really an aggressive way and style and feel of playing, much like the later decades, like uh, the Foo Fighters and, and the Guns N' Roses and the Chili Peppers all had that really intense edge. So I wanted to have a musical mutation from Fleetwood playing with that 70 sounds across the verses uh, that talk about those early stars and as it morphs into later decades Chad comes in and the record just shifts gears and sounds much more modern like the, uh, the later decades and the end of the 21st century and I've written this verse about Guns N' Roses, uh, Slash and Rose, uh, and I was going to see if I couldn't get Axel, I mean, if I couldn't get Slash to just come in, I'd play a couple of his classic guitar licks in that verse. And so he agreed, came walking in the studio with his last ball, he plugged into one of my old Marshall sacks. He said, well, what do you want me to do? I said, well, just be Slash, and what do you want to do? He said, well, just start it back at the top and let me start recording. So he just recorded top to bottom about three or four times, and it was so much great stuff that it was like a whole Slash record, and there was no room for me. So I, <laughs> we had to go back in after he left and edit out some of his stuff and make some room for me to play on my own record. You know, he did so much good stuff. It was hard to decide what not to put on the record. You know, and it was just the appropriate guy to play on that pocket, on that song. And uh, the fact that he was mentioned in that next to the last verse, and the Chili Peppers are mentioned in, in that as well. So they both got a, a nice little delight out of playing on a record that they got a wink and a nod at lyrically. So... Uh, but it turned out to be really a, a, just a pleasant surprise the way all those things together. Now, that kind of process is the way the whole record happened. I've written a song called Limelight that's on this record, and it's just like a really hard shuffle. And I kept thinking, who can I get to play guitar on that? And at one point, I thought about Bonamassa. I love Joe, and... I, he was on the road, I couldn't get him in. Who else can I get? And I thought of Sambora. 
So I called up Richie and he said, yeah, come on over to my studio and we'll, <clears throat> we'll put it on. I got a studio set up. I'm working on a record. So I go over and he's got a studio set up in his kitchen. <laughs> I, I've made, I've made records everywhere, uh, but never in a kitchen and never in a bathroom. Thank God. But, uh, anyway, so we're in his kitchen and he's playing and I'm playing. We're trading off these solos. I look over at the staircase and Orianthe comes walking down and I completely forgotten that Orianthe was together with Richie Sambora at the time as a couple. And I've known Orianthe since she first came to the United States from Australia. I said, Orianthe, get a guitar. Get over here, plug in. you got to be on this record. And she had just woken up. She had flip-flops on, some cut-off shorts, a T-shirt, and a baseball hat because she hadn't done her hair. And she picks up a guitar and blows me and Sambora away. It's just unbelievable. It would be one of my favorite solos on the record is Orianthe on that song, Limelight. Uh, I wrote this song called uh, Rock You and I've always wanted to do a duet uh, vocally but not not like a with a girl and a romantic duet not that I wanted to do a rock duet with another guy so I originally wrote this track uh, it's like this big stadium anthem uh, kind of song and I'm thinking who can I get to who can I get to sing on this with me? And Sammy Hagar popped into my mind. Sammy's got that classic, just Van Halen screaming rock voice. So I call up Sammy and, hey, I've got this idea for a duet and I don't even finish the, the explanation. He says, sure, come on up to my studio, we'll record it. So next thing I know, I'm on a plane, flying up to South Toledo. <clears throat> we go into Sammy's studio we go into Sammy's studio, and uh, literally about an hour later, we're finished recording my vocal, his vocals. It's all kind of pieced together. It sounded great. And uh, we managed to wrangle Joe Satriani uh, to grab a guitar and come sit in on the session. And I set up a guitar, and Joe and I just make up all the guitar parts on that, that record, the solos, the harmonies, the trading off parts of it all. And that happens in about an hour. Just as we're finishing up, Bob Weir from the Grateful Dead comes walking down the hallway. He's got a <laughs> studio about, I don't know, two blocks away or something. And so whenever there's nothing going on in Bob's studio, he comes over to hang out in Sammy's studio to steal a cup of coffee and, and uh, hear some funny jokes. So he comes over and I said, Bob, you've got to sing on this track. Come out of here by this mic and kind of parade him out there and have him sing six times, Rock You, which is the chorus. It's supposed to sound like thousands of people in the stadium. And it was so ironic that me having been in 1969 at Woodstock, watching Grateful Dead, here I am having Bob sing on the chorus of this duet that I'm singing with Sammy and Satriani. Uh, there's never any... Uh, Never ceases to amaze me the things that life uh, brings you. Well, I was going to say that. Also, I know I saw that Peter Frampton was involved in it, and you know I'm 55, and you know we listen to the Eagles and we listen to Frampton, and Frampton comes alive. I mean, if you're 45 to 55, is just something that was a college listen, and you just loved it. How did had you known Peter before, 
and how did you get him involved? Yeah, I've known Peter a long time, but uh, he invited me to play on uh, his Frampton's Guitar Circus about five years ago. I think we did 12 or 15 dates together. It was his band. I'd come out in the middle of the show and we'd do, I don't know, three or four songs. We'd trade off and play and sing Pride and Joy, trade off and sing something else. And we'd do Hotel California and he and I would do the harmonies and solos on the end. And uh, so I know how Peter plays, you know, listening to his show. And I was writing this one song called The Way Things Have to Be. And I wrote it on piano. And the whole time that I was writing this song, I kept hearing that Frampton Les Paul to a Leslie sound. It's just a beautiful, angelic kind of ethereal tone. And so after I cut the track, I called Peter up and I said, would you do me a favor? Um, now, I also inducted, Peter called me up and asked me if I would induct him into the Musicians Hall of Fame in Nashville. This is three years ago. I said, absolutely, it'd be an honor to induct you into the Musicians Hall of Fame. So I flew back to Nashville, inducted him into the Hall of Fame, and the next year, they want to induct me into the Hall of Fame. They said, who would you like to have induct you into the Hall of Fame? I said, well, I know somebody that owes me something. So <laughs> I called Peter and said, would you mind inducting me into the Musicians Hall of Fame? So he's living in Nashville at the time. So he comes out and inducts me. We play hotel and some other songs together. So, yeah, I'd known him. but So when I called him up, I said, I've got this track I'd love to have you play on. He says, absolutely, just come over to my studio in Nashville. So I hop on a plane and fly to Nashville. Two or three hours later, he knows the exact sound I'm talking about. Pulls out his Les Paul, tunes it up, plugs it into this Leslie. There it is. And it's just the perfect combination of tonality and the texture and feeling for that song. Now, this is probably over two years ago, and I did not know... Peter's diagnosis at the time. Uh, as far as I know, he was the happiest, healthiest guy I'd ever been around. He has a nonstop smile, ear to ear, a great disposition. I have never seen him upset or angry or in any way, anything but just lovingly having a fun time. So he plays on this thing, it's great, and then I hear about six months before he actually released the press release about his connection, his condition. Uh, I had heard from someone very close to him that he had this health issue. And I found it unbelievably ironic that the name of the song that I chose for him to play on was The Way Things Have to Be. And had I known, I would have chosen something, obviously, a little less close to home. But it just, things happen a certain way. And, uh, yeah, that's how Peter wound up on the record. Well, I know you have a limited time, so obviously it's a great album. And I want to ask a quick question, though. You know, you, you co-wrote Hotel California, and you're writing your own music now. Has your insight and music writing abilities, or just the way you write, changed a lot since you co-wrote that? I know you were writing other songs at the time. Yeah, what happens when I was in the Eagles is I had to write for a cast of characters. 
almost like you were writing for a sitcom. You know the characters, you know their personalities. Well, in the Eagles, I knew how Don Henley played. Uh, I knew the vocal ranges to write what songs and what keys he would be able to sing in. I knew I had to write fairly simple parts that I wrote for Hotel California is simple, or the bass part that I wrote for one of these nights is simple, but I had to keep it simple enough that those players could play. Outside of that, uh, that framework, uh, I can write for anything, and I can get the greatest bass players in L.A. I, I mean, if you look at the bass players that are on my album, it's Nathan East, Abe Laboriel, and some of the best bass players available that were appropriate for the songs that I put them on. Greatest drummers that don't have to worry about singing and playing at the same time. Uh, so a lot of those restrictions and being kind of encaged in that framework of writing were lifted. Funny story, there's a song on the album called The Sun. And I originally wrote that right after my first son, S-O-N, was okay. born. And I prayed it for Henley and Fry. Uh, this is about 1974, maybe. I just joined the Eagles. Uh, and we were working on the One of These Nights album, writing for that. And so I'd written that song, and I always heard it as a very kind of acoustic-based big vocal track uh, and I played it for him and I think Glenn said that's really sweet that you wrote a, a song for your son next and went on to writing more like R&D stuff and they passed on it so I, I went back and thought you know that was just such a beautiful song maybe it was just too narrow the lyrics were too narrow that if you don't have a son which nobody else in the band had children uh, you just couldn't relate to it. So I broadened the scope and wrote it more from a, a spiritual uh, point of view than from just a father and son type uh, lyric. So anyway, I was very proud to be able to use and achieve what I originally conceived in that song, but produced it myself on my own record. And a lot of people have said they like that as one of the top three songs on the album. Now, when you're touring now, do you play a lot of the stuff off the new album? I, I play, it depends. Uh, I play for bigger crowds, like, you know, 15, 18,000 shed outdoor dates. I'll play American Rock and Roll and or Rock You. Uh, I'm going to do a date, I think, next week with Sammy Hagar. I'm going to see if I can't uh, play Rock You and have him come out and play it with me. So, uh, or sing it with me. So, We'll see. If he says no, I'll probably just do American Rock and Roll instead. Okay. So anyway, uh, yeah, but I, I try to play at least one, if not two, um, new songs in, in every show. Well, great. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time. I know you're a busy man. People, go to the website, DonFelder.com. It's a great website. It's got all his info, his tour dates, a great write-up about the new album. And I want to thank you, Don, and I want you to have a great Saturday. And I'm going to actually go enjoy the sun because we, we haven't been getting it a lot lately. <laughs> well, thanks. Everybody can follow me on uh, Don Felder Music on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter. You can follow me anywhere except uh, out to my car. Okay. You have a great day, Don. <laughs> 
right, thanks. Appreciate it. Talk Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. bye-bye.